Welcome to Unsupervised Thinking, a podcast on neuroscience, artificial intelligence, and science more broadly. We are a group of computational neuroscientists. I'm Grace. I'm Josh. And I'm Connor. And for this episode, we're going to be asking, what can measuring eye movements tell us about the brain or about the mind or something? I think to people who aren't in neuroscience, and even to myself before I thought about it explicitly, I didn't realize like how much eye movement tracking comes up in neuroscience uh, and it comes up in a, in a few different ways and we're kind of only going to be talking about one portion of it. So it comes up um, in the sense that if you are working with animals, particularly if you're working with macaque monkeys, basically how they indicate their decisions or uh, how they engage in a task that you're having them do, like a cognitive task, is by eye movements a lot of the time. So uh, these uh, devices that we'll get into, kind of the methodology of eye tracking, where I first encountered them was in these experiments where you need to track um, where a monkey is looking on a screen to be able to read out its decision. So if it sees like two choices, it looks to one to say it's choosing that thing over the other one. And so eye tracking is used a lot for that, but that's not about the eye movements themselves. That's just a readout mechanism when you're trying to study other cognitive things like memory or something like that. Um, another place that it comes up a lot in neuroscience is that people are interested in the systems that control eye movements. So you can be doing neural recordings of certain areas that have kind of uh, motor control relationships to the eyes, and you can see how uh, these eye movement decisions are made and how they get executed. And so that's kind of a sensory motor control uh, question that's studied in the brain. Uh, and then also there are people who, when you make eye movements, um, they study the sensory process of that because you can imagine that when you move your eyes, you're kind of creating a blurry vision of the world, but we don't experience it that way. We experience a stable perception of the world. So that's a whole other section of eye movement related neuroscience that happens. And we're not talking about any of that kind of eye movement work. <laughs> we're talking about measuring eye movements alone, not with neural recordings most of the time, and using them to figure out something about cognitive processes that are happening naturally. I think that would be an accurate description of, of what we'll be talking about. And so we're going to get into the methodology of eye tracking uh, and a little bit of the history, and then we'll talk about applications in kind of this realm. I mean, I guess just to sort of motivate this a little bit better as well, I think this is actually just kind of cool. Um, and in recent years, it seems like the technology for this has gotten very good and miniaturized a bit. So like historically, people have to do com some complicated things to measure eye position and, and eye movements and we'll talk about that a bit but like in the it really in the past few years it's gone from like you could only do experiments easily where you were tracking someone whose head was fixed and they were looking at a screen and then you could get sort of accurate indication of where they were looking on a screen to like now uh i first encountered this like they, they now have like field devices that i encountered at a conference that i got to try it out and i was just really struck by it which is you, you, you're basically wearing glasses and they have like a little, uh, and I, I think they even have like prescription filters for these. So I was able to basically say, yeah, I need like a slightly prescription version of this glasses. And uh, they have like a small camera that faces your eyes, an infrared camera. We'll talk more about this later. 
and it like can track the position of your eye while you're looking at stuff in the real world and it has an outward facing camera and they can calibrate this and then you can like you so you just look around and it feels like you're wearing kind of normal glasses that are like maybe slightly clunkier than normal but basically normal glasses and then they showed me the video and the video showed essentially my field of view and a dot pointing to what what my you know what i was looking at in my field of view and like you know i, I was looking around at like a, in like a complicated normal conference area and you know i was like they, they suggested that i read something and so I, I was reading something you could see my eyes just like track i could i could see my own eyes just essentially tracking the words that i had been reading and looking at faces and looking at the things and it was it was kind of cool and striking mm-hmm. I can i clarify did you look at your own eye tracking data after you yeah yeah so this? it was okay. afterwards yeah so first i'm like i'm just like doing it they're like hey look around for a little bit so like for like 30 seconds i just kind of looked around and felt like an idiot because i was just like doing stupid things like reading something that was i wasn't actually interested in and then afterwards i uh they showed me like a 30 second clip that they had just recorded and i was able to look back at it and I mean, this was the first time. So I've 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 seen eye tracking data observationally for head mounted eye tracking, and it like does what you would expect. And in a scientific setting, it's I think it's easy to forget how interesting it is. You're just thinking of this as like data for an experiment you're doing, and it's still very cool. But this was like kind of totally in the field data, like total like in the wild, like natural viewing. And the fact that the contemporary technology has gotten to the point where like an outward facing camera mounted on glasses, combined with eye tracking, can let me like look at what I was looking at and you you can there's like something kind of interesting about it it tells you kind of what the person was thinking slightly longer ago people had head mounted cameras and they still do obviously and it's like you know, I don't know if you have a GoPro attached to your head now would be the version of it but like scientists have been doing this for a while you know you see like a jittery camera it just looks like a, I mean it's not interesting because we see so much video it just looks like someone was taking bad video in some sense but when you see this kind of head mounted thing but then with a dot over it which is telling you what you're looking at Somehow it feels like way more mm. magical. Yeah. It's like it, it kind of tells you like what the person's thinking about. It's like when you when you just see where they're facing, it's like it's like as I said, kind of bad video. But when you see the dot, you you can like see oh that person was reading at that moment, or that person was paying attention to that person's face. It really does feel like you're inside their. It head. feels like you're yeah. you're reading someone's mind by and looking so, at where their eyes are looking. Yeah, we can link to we watched some videos um, that were made I think by Fractal Media most of them at least. Um, and one in particular was of a piano player who was wearing this kind of device. And there was also another one of people on uh, kind of fake first dates. Like they had people meet in this lab and wear these devices and stuff. And so you can see just, they, they show you this kind of view of the scene and where their eyes were in it. And you can get a sense of what this looks like. And it does, it, it, I think it is a little bit striking because you don't necessarily expect it. And I think that's kind of what this data is like what's interesting about this data is that it contains more information than maybe you would initially expect. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, like just to sort of emphasize this for me, sort of it feels like if you knew what I was looking at, you wouldn't know what I was thinking. And like as I walk around, you know, my kitchen or whatever and I'm preparing food, I could be pondering something else or something like this. And, and that's true. That remains true even with eye tracking. But at the same time, it becomes like, it's sort of surprising when you watch eye tracking data of yourself or of someone else because you realize actually so much of what you are thinking is constrained by what you're looking at or like what you're looking at reveals so much of what you're thinking. Um, at least you can make 
even more educated inferences about what a person's thinking based on looking at what they're looking at. I mean, this is, um, isn't there an idea that this is something very special about people, right? Our ability to, and our interest in knowing what other people are looking at and our ability to like jointly attend to, have you heard of this thing? The place I came across, it was in a book by, uh, I think a very famous behavioral scientist. I'm not sure exactly what he is. Developmental psychologist, maybe. Tomasello, his name is. He has a book about cooperation, human cooperation. He has done these lots of nice studies comparing human cooperation, especially in infants of different ages, to um, cooperation in other types of in other primates, chimpanzees and other apes and stuff. Um, and he makes claims which I think are pretty pretty well known about um, human ability to form kind of joint goals, kind of without explicit communication even. And he thinks this is very much related to our ability to infer what we're attending to and to kind of jointly attend to. Look at, yeah. like look at what other people are yeah, looking basically. at. And kind yeah, of, but yeah. this is meant to have some kind of, it's meant to be linked to kind of these more complex cognitive. So it's supposed to be something of particular salience to us as people is the point. So it kind of makes sense that like you would find it, you know what I mean? If that's right, then it would make sense that you would find it very kind of like interesting to, to kind of know where people were looking. Yes, and so I've read a bunch of this literature as well. Actually, like there, there's a lot about yeah how people can infer what other people are looking at, infer people's goals by looking at their eyes. How like you know what's the level of innateness of looking at people's eyes and infer, you know and sort of looking to where people are looking, right. um, whether you need to learn that or or yeah. So I mean this is this is a big topic in psychology. Yeah, uh, yeah and uh, part of what I study is covert attention, which is when you're looking at one thing but you're actually trying to pay attention to some other location that kind of thing and when people ask like why is that even a thing like why are we able to do it one of the hypotheses is that maybe you want to be able to look at something but you don't want anyone else to know that that you're trying to look at that yeah so you can know like you know theory of mind stuff like you know if i look directly at something someone will know that i'm paying attention to that and i don't want them to know that i'm paying attention to that so it seems it probably is pretty relevant the social cues of eye movements um also i guess we should say that not all animals actually kind of have this behavior, at least not so strongly, um, like in terms of actually using movements of their eyes within their stable head. Uh, that's kind of a more primate thing, and birds of prey, I guess, can move their, their eyes around. Um, but like mice, their eyes can move, but it's not like a primary behavioral output that they have. And so, okay, so I guess, I mean, sort of the scope of what we'll talk about will be kind of historically what people have done for eye tracking, a little bit about the different kinds of eye movements. And then uh, we'll talk about a variety of things, like some 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 things that you can learn and study, le- learn about and study using eye movements. And then uh, a few other sort of interesting anecdotal things like sex differences in viewing sexual stimuli. Yeah, you're teasing that one. Oh, it's, so. it's a teaser. <laughs> Stick around till the end. <laughs> oh god, that's one of the dorkiest things I've ever heard you say. <laughs> <laughs> you like seductively read a paper title. <laughs> yeah. You've heard me say a lot of things, so yeah, that's true. for that to be one of the dorkiest is it's up there. Okay. Um so I guess yeah, the history, the first uh at least the first reported eye tracking study is from eighteen seventy nine. So that's one of the older techniques available, like techniques that are still in use especially. It was by uh, this person, Emil Java, 
and basically he just looked at a person's eyes while they were reading and like marked down you know observations and for some reason that was like shocking to me like I just like how do you just look at their eyes like how is that available like how is that an option for doing this but obviously in the early days of any technique it's not super quantitative and and high tech but I should say I don't think I think the setup is he was looking at a mirror that reflected their eyes because obviously if you're staring at someone's eyes it's probably distracting to them so I think he was looking at a, a reflection of their eyes and just noting the movements and um this but, was while they were sorry oh no yeah that's fine <laughs> were you checking if, well, like, the just mirror like, if there's would... a mirror then <laughs> by the way mirrors work isn't that kind of the same as... <laughs> his eyes were reflected back at that person's eyes but they weren't looking at them which i think is different i guess it's different. i mean i guess if they were reading i don't know <laughs> yeah. well it worked okay <laughs> <laughs> no the point is yeah. they can't have been looking directly into the mirror yeah. Or like in, but, he can't have been looking directly. He has to have been looking at like the top of their eyes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. For them not so, to have been looking at him. <laughs> right. I mean, it's it's clear that eye tracking has made progress <laughs> since since then. Yeah, this isn't a, a problem for most experimentalists at the moment. <laughs> um, but from that, it was while people were reading, and I guess the assumption at that time was, you know, if you're reading, you're probably just kind of smoothly moving your eyes across the words on a page. But in actuality, the way eye movements work is that you make these things called saccades and I think this was the person who coined that term saccades which is that you make these jumps these kind of discrete jumps and so a a saccade is an eye movement like kind of a small eye movement in a straight line um, and you make several of them per second and you kind of do it without really realizing or thinking so explicitly about it I mean obviously sometimes you are very explicit in choosing where you want to look but just in your natural taking in of the visual world you're making small eye movements all the time uh without so much conscious effort or kind of realization of it in terms of your sensory perception so that was uh the earliest and then once people realized what you could do by studying eye movements people started to actually create you know proper devices which from what i understand seem horrific (laughs) so (laughs) there was one uh edmund huey in 1908 Though I, I couldn't find like a, a drawing of what this looked like or anything, but apparently they're contact lenses that have a hole for the pupil so that you can see, but then they also have, they said there was an aluminum pointer that stuck out of it. Like there's a, a stick coming out of your eye. And so when you move your eye, like it moves the stick so it could see where you were looking. What? Which, I, I, this is my understanding. <laughs> oh, um, creepy. Yeah. And you probably did it on like uh, poor people or something. You know? That's how it was, but <laughs> that was not in the history that I read. But <laughs> I mean, people did weird stuff. Like Isaac Newton did weird things to his own yeah, eye. Yeah, he right? stuck a thing in his so, eye. So I don't know. Sometimes these scientists. I mean, I'm not trying to exonerate them. <laughs> well, I just made that up. So <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I understand. But like, I, I mean, clearly there's a, a history of scientists doing bad things to people with right, like right. only sort of consent from them. But the scientists did weird stuff to themselves, too. I think it's it's easy to forget that when we, we think about all the terrible things they did to other people. <laughs> scientists harm both themselves and others. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so uh, they stuck stick yes. on the eye. That's and then weird. you could see where the pointer pointed. Um, and then so this guy, Yarbus, was a big name. And in 67, he had a whole setup. And apparently there were eight suction cups involved on the eye. Um, to to measure its movements. And I mean, I know at least for this one, it said like, 
it was uncomfortable and people could only do it for like five minutes at a time and then they had to stop, mm. which makes me question like, you know, you can't trust data where people are right. <laughs> in pain when they're trying to make eye movements and you're measuring their eye movements. But I mean, the a lot of like the, the basic information about eye movements did come from Yarbis and whatever this machine was. Um, and so I think attributed to him are some of the, the basic facts like you have fixations, which are when your eye is in one place and then you make these saccades, but then also even when you're fixating at, at one location, there is uh, there are small movements that still occur. So there's kind of drift around that location and there I are I guess now tremor. people call this in neuroscience where they're talking about like micro saccades, right? Or is yes. that different? Well, I think that there's research to determine... When I think of microsaccade, I think that that's assuming that those are actually... Like, they have informational content. And okay, like, so there's, there's drift, related. which is separate from microsaccades. Yeah, I mean, I think... Yeah. In, in my mind, they can be separate, but also it was, like, kind of a discovery that maybe some of these small movements are actually informational. I see. So, okay. maybe so microsaccades were, are, like small intentional things that are like of a certain distance that people don't consider proper saccades yes and drift can be separate okay yeah i think so so yeah so there's the, there are these different types of movements of of various sizes that they were able to identify by using these torture devices um and then there's smooth pursuit which is when you are following a moving object um and it's special because I mean, basically, this this exact type of, of tracking you kind of can't do without there actually being a moving object. So to to be very clear about what this is, right? It's it's like you're looking straight ahead or something like this, and you see a car moving in the distance, and without moving your head, you're able to keep your eyes moving like at a constant rate, following like tracking the car. Basically, you're looking at a constant location on the car while the car is moving, so you're tracking it. And your head is fixed. So you're, it means your eyes are moving continuously rather than making saccades. No, it's like the funny, the funny effect of this, right? Is like on trains. Yes, exactly. That's what if I you was, look out of a train window, you always track the the stuff going by, and then if you look at look at someone's eyes when they're looking at the window of a train, they're like twitching. People's <laughs> eyes look like absurdly them. fast, like they like they're flickering yeah. back and forth. Yeah, because it is. It's I. It's like almost hard to not do it. I think it happens very. In- uh, instinctively, I think it's like impossible, kind of, right? Or in some sense, like, have you ever? I guess when I think I, about how you not, not do, do it, it, is like you focus on the window instead of through the window. Yeah, right. but yeah, if you're looking, if you're looking at something in the distance out of a train, or for example, on the subway, if you're reading like the walls or something, like when the train is near mm-hmm. a station, yeah, like yeah. you'll see someone's trying to read text or look at something in the distance. Yeah, you'll see their eyes flicker back and forth horizontally. I hadn't really thought about smooth pursuit until someone pointed it out to me. I mean, I think it is kind of the thing that you have to be pointed out. And it seems like it's it's apparently like evolutionarily recent or something. Like, it, it's not the case that most animals can do it. It's not like it's exclusive to humans or whatever, but many animals don't don't have smooth pursuit. Yeah, and like I, another thing that always makes it makes me realize that it's not trivial is like it's hard to do. I mean, it's kind of impossible to do it. You can't like you can't smoothly move your eyes across a scene. You may think that you are, but it's just because your brain is good at covering up all the small saccades you're making from your from the perspective of your perception. It feels like maybe you're looking smoothly, but unless you're tracking an object, you're probably making saccades. Yeah, I mean, when I try to do it though, I can. It's like very obvious that I can't. Do it. <laughs> Unless you go really slowly, you can kind of like look at loads of things that are close to each other. Really, generally, but you're like probably just making way. small jumps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. You're making these little tiny scouts. So you replicated the finding that you need to actually see a moving object to do that. Yes. 
Um, <laughs> right. So, yeah, so the, the methods nowadays are significantly better, especially like in, in recent years. For a while, people were using uh, basically like magnetic fields as a important component as to how eye movements were sensed. So there's one way, which is naturally the eye due to the, the optic nerve bundles has like a polarization to it. And when it moves, it creates disturbances in a magnetic field. And so you can just put uh, electrodes on the face and you can get some signal that corresponds to eye movements by doing that. Um, but it's not very clean. And so that's not really how it's used. Usually an experimenter will induce some sort of magnetic field and put um, a coil on the eye. And then when the eye moves, the coil moves in the magnetic field and it's like a much more precise eye tracking device. And Connor, you know a bit about this from experimental settings? or uh, I mean, not really. Like, I know that they implant those in monkey eyes. Pretty standard thing. I don't know much about it. Grace probably knows more about it than I do. Okay. The ones that I we use with humans are all video-based. Okay. Yeah. So, so this um, eye coil, the magnetic thing, the, is called a scleral eye coil. And um, it's it was used for monkey experiments for a long time. And there is a way to do it in humans. There's like a contact lens that you can put on people. Um, but it is becoming less fashionable, be fashionable because the uh, purely optical methods have become so much better. And obviously, they're much yeah. easier to set up. There's no like surgery or contact lenses or something like that. So we can talk about how those work. I mean, basically, it's that instead of having to, to have anything touching the eye, you're just visually observing the eye. I guess it's kind of like back to the roots, like... <laughs> Emil Java <laughs> looking at the eye. You have a camera that faces the eye. There are people who try to do it with just a normal camera and just, you know, you do kind of computer vision on this to, to track the eye. But the better way to do it is to uh, have infrared light that's projected at the eye. And since we don't sense infrared, it doesn't bother the person. But then the pupil reflects back that light very strongly and it creates a very um, strong signal that you can very easily track. So it's like, it's like super easy in a camera. Like when you have an image of the eye, it's super easy to just detect the location of the pupil. And yeah. as you then move your eye... If the camera is in a fixed position relative to your eye, the if you, pupil movements are easy to detect and, and map on to what you're seeing. If you see a video of this, like if you see the, the camera's perspective, it's kind of creepy because it looks like ghost-like and it kind of looks like the person has cat eyes because they're so reflective. It's it's weird. <laughs> or, or it might be like, I don't know, if you see low budget like stuff like sci-fi movies where it's like, or, or like horror movies where there's like a... Uh, an infrared camera, like a like a night vision camera, facing a person that's like mounted on the yeah, person, yeah, kind of like, like in a Blair Witch Project or something like this. Yeah. Uh, that's that's kind of what these things look like. So, so these methods are are quite good now and reach the level of accuracy that the magnetic coil ones did. So they're they're predominantly used because they're easy to set up. The issue um, is that you know if you have it set up usually in a laboratory setting, the person's head does need to be stable because you, uh, if they move their head, obviously their eyes move, and then that's a problem. It's only more recently that they created these devices that Josh was talking about, where you just like wear glasses that have a camera on them and are tracking your eyes, and so they can just kind of put it together, and if you move your head, the camera moves, and so it knows what is in front of you. Um, but usually in laboratory settings, the person's head is, is in the same position the whole time. But this is, I think, to me, one of the interesting settings where like, you can see the progression of like kind of the technology being useful in a lab setting, like the head fix stuff you would kind of, it's like clearly only for lab settings where you would do eye tracking. 
um, where like literally there's like a, a big frame on the table, like bolted to the table and a person like, you know, puts their head into it kind of the way you would for like if you were getting an eye exam at a doctor's office or something like this. And you just leave your head there for 30 minutes while you're, you know, the subject of an experiment. And like in engineering or like bioengineering or whatever, people have been like building, you know, for the course of 15, 20 years, like kind of the sort of ridiculous proto technologies that it's always kind of funny to see pictures of like a guy with a backpack and like a giant camera facing their face. Uh, and like gradually this is getting better, right? So like now it, it, is, it is the case that that technology, which was kind of absurd, like a giant battery pack with like a whole camera facing your face is now like a tiny little camera, you know, like a microchip essentially facing your face from the inside of a normal pair of glasses or like a, a mostly normal pair of glasses. Like miniaturization has gotten things to the point where like, this sort of seemingly impractical technology that like still in the field you would only use for experimental purposes has become something like probably wouldn't be too onerous to use like relatively casually. So how do the most modern ones work? Is it all just normal light based? Well, it's infrared still. Uh, So it's an, it's it's, it's like a small, like a tiny, you know, like microchip sized infrared camera or whatever streaming over like Bluetooth or something to a nearby laptop or computer. It's pretty cool. So we can get into what the research actually learns from this, but maybe we can uh, just quickly cover what's being measured usually. So we talked about the different types of eye movements, but then what do you actually analyze when you have that data? So some of the um, common measures are, so if you show someone a picture or scene or something like that, the first fixation location, so the thing they look to first is considered relevant, um, how long they fixate or dwell on different regions of the image that they're looking at, uh, the number of fixations that they make or the number of saccades, so how many different places, how many times do they move their eyes, and then also separately is how many different places do they look, because they could go back to the same place multiple times, and that's kind of another measure. After how many eye movements do they go back to a place that they've already been? Uh, And so all of these kinds of things are uh, kind of behavioral outputs that you can measure and you can see how they change with different images or tasks that the person is doing. So again, sort of briefly going back, there was this, so like the first work that people kind of, like the first like modern work that people cite about eye tracking is this work by Yarbis in 1967. And like the famous bit, it's, it's like a long, like it's like a book that I guess was originally Russian and was translated, you know, to, to English. Um, but I, I, like the main thing that people cite from it frequently, like you would hear people talk about, is an experiment where he had people look at a picture, some famous painting or something like this, and the unexpected visitor. The unexpected I think is visitor. The English translation of it. And uh, ask them before, like they were primed before they looked at the painting, uh, to like be looking for different things, like count the number of people or whatever, whatever they were supposed to be doing. It was like, how wealthy do you think these people are? How old are the people? What were they doing right before? I was going to say this picture was taken, but before <laughs> this painting was done. <laughs> and then you have, so you've got, you've got this painting and, and they, ask, they ask these questions and then they're shown the painting and you see where their eyes move. And basically it's like this semi self-explanatory thing where you just like see where are people looking when they're primed with these different tasks. And there's lots of nuanced analysis that can be done, but like, the basic effect is very striking, right? I mean, if you're told to count people, you're going to see people kind of like look from face to face in the painting almost immediately. 
essentially making it clear that they're like counting the number of faces in and the if painting. they're told like how, if they're told to say how wealthy are they they're going to look at like the clothing of the people or maybe the room that they're in or something like that so they, they there can be very different patterns of looking just in this one painting and so the salient point i guess is that like when people are doing this uh the context or like what the task is that they're being told they should do or like what their cognitive state is 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 reflected in their pattern of eye movements yeah and i mean that sounds it sounds kind of trivial but if you think about it i mean it's something as simple as your retina and your eye it feels very basic and it doesn't feel like you know high level cognitive things like someone asking you how wealthy is this person would impact something so low level in a way so i think that was the surprising thing that just the very basic way in which you take in information is impacted by high level things in your brain i don't know i still feel like that's something that we have to kind of we as sort of neuro or uh you know, in people interested in behavior would strain to turn into an interesting thing. And if you said it to someone in plain language, they'd be like, yeah, obviously, right? I mean, it's like, yeah, but it was you look at different things depending on what you're doing. Not that surprising, right? Well, okay. So, I, I mean, I agree with you. I would say it was 1967. So I don't know what people's intuitions were <laughs> at that time. Also, there are still a lot of people who are interested in basically taskless vision and eye movements. So there are people who talk about things like saliency maps, which is if I show you an image, where do you go to? What do you attend to immediately? Um, And usually what they find is like bright things or things that are unique amongst the setting that they're in, stand out, sharp edges, you know, like very basic low-level features that just kind of grab your attention because they're striking. You will look to those things. And there's a lot of research that tries to explain Uh, actually just describe what it is that captures bottom-up attention in that kind of way and explain why it is and that kind of thing. And those, I mean, that's literature that I've been familiar with. And then having this, uh, you know, looking at this kind of stuff, saying like, well, it's clear that task has a huge influence. It kind of makes all that other stuff seem like, well, when is that even at play? When is it relevant that you have these saliency things, assuming that we're always kind of doing a task? I guess my reason for finding that not that surprising is because it seems maybe just because for those particular tasks it seems sort of obvious yeah it seems no no no, the point is that it seems overt it seems like you you would overtly be kind of like okay what do i what do i need to know in order to figure out if someone is wealthy and the kind of for me i guess most of the really interesting stuff here is when it gets into that more when you start realizing that there's all of this clever computation going on to determine where you look in ways that you're not really aware of yeah 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 yeah. i mean that definitely is uh, the more interesting stuff so but i mean let's just to to sort of spell this out i mean i think there's a way in which it's like if you ask someone naively before presenting them with this information like what, what do you think people do like people would say like oh yeah maybe they look at the people or something like this I think there are a couple things that are like not obvious. And I think the first time this is presented, it can seem more obvious than it in fact is, which is like you say like, oh, there are you see a room full of people. How would you go about counting? Well, you would like look at all the people. Well, it's like, well, but are you making a head movement or are you making like movements or are you just like looking statically and counting? And I don't know. I mean, maybe it's not obvious, though it might seem so at first that like you're actually going to make saccades to all the faces that you're counting or something like that. If that's, I mean, maybe you don't do it exactly, but like 
pretty close to you're going to make saccades to each face when you count them or something like that. And that's maybe slightly mm. more surprising than you might think. You might think like I'm looking at this field of people and like without moving my head and without moving my eyes, I can count them. And it's like, it's true. You probably could look at that field of people and without moving your eyes or your head, count them. But like in reality, when you're doing it in natural behavior, you might actually just move your eyes to each face. Mm-hmm. So like the details of that, the distinction between like what you could do and what you might do and like what you in fact do do, I don't know. Th- th- those, people, those seem slightly not obvious. People do have a like holistic sensation when you think I saw a painting. You don't think I looked at this corner, then I looked at this face, then I looked at the suitcase in the painting. It's just like there is this painting and I can kind of draw it up in my mind as just this thing. But when you're actually looking at it, you're looking at these little pieces. And so you could imagine that when you look at this painting, there's just one way to take it all in. You make the same eye movements across the whole thing, and then you've taken the painting in, and now you can make decisions about it. But in actuality, that's not what it is. What decisions you're going to make about it determine your eye movements and how you take it in. So, so I don't know, Connor, this, this still mm-hmm. seems too obvious to you or something. No, I, I'm trying to be... I think the fact that we look at paintings by looking at different parts of them and that we would look at it differently if someone asked us different questions about it is intuitive i don't think anybody would find that surprising many people know that they like look around um at things but i think some of the things in the paper in this one of these papers in some of these papers especially in the eye movements in natural yeah. behavior yeah, okay so, so let's is, let's talk about that one so what, what's the point that you think is sure. particularly well let go, me go just ahead. first say that it's it's called eye movements and natural behavior by mary hayhoe and dana ballard from 2005 I mean, so I'll just read, I'm just going to read a quick quote because I think it's probably pretty central. Um, so they say, the most novel finding of task-oriented studies is that the eyes are positioned at a point that is not the most visually salient, but is the best for the spatiotemporal demands of the job that needs to be done. So I guess that's in line with what we've been talking about. That could be more in the kind of intuitive, on intuitive end, but then depending on what, you know, they say the spatiotemporal demands of the job that needs to be done, they're going to go on to talk about a few cases where, you know, and you alluded to this, Josh, right? I think Grace, too. Like, it's not obvious. In, in many, for many tasks, it's not obvious what the spatiotemporal demands are. Yeah, so maybe we can and say so be, what her kind of... A lot of this work was done by Mary Hale's lab. And so the setup is that they have people having these head-mounted, or at least in, in some of her experiments, they have people have these head-mounted eye-tracking devices, and then they give them a task to do, like make a sandwich or make tea or something like that. And so they can measure their eye movements as they do these tasks over time, which is obviously a more interesting setting than just looking at a painting. I mean, so yeah, I guess to start at the bottom, so they have this on the, I guess, one of the first, the second page, there's a figure showing where people fixate um, while making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. They talk about this just-in-time strategy where you acquire information you need just at the point where it's required in the task. And that to me is a little bit less obvious. So the, so the idea would be like, you're making a sandwich and you're looking around and like right before you need the jelly, you look at the jelly or something like that. Is this the claim? Something yeah. something, something, yeah. something to this effect. And it's not, I mean, you say like you're looking around, but the other point is that you make no unnecessary eye movements. Right. So you're not looking around, you're looking yeah. at the bread until the moment before you need to reach for the jelly, then you fixate the jelly. The order that uh, came up is usually you move your eyes, you move your head, you move your hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the thing which I found most most surprising. It's like, it's it's the sense of like economy. 
Yeah, you to know, look at really, um, yeah to look at some of these things, it you it feels like th- these people are, must be like experts. <laughs> but I mean, they're just someone who was right. told to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And so, and then the thing yeah. that's subtle that Connor you were alluding to, right, is that when you're doing this, how is it that like you make your fixation immediately to the jelly when you need the jelly? It's like, well, actually, your peripheral vision is making sense of where the jelly is. Like you're fixating on the bread mm-hmm. or your knife or whatever you're doing right now or the peanut butter or something. And you, you, you actually know where the jelly is before you fixate on it. Right. Uh, based on your uh, peripheral vision. Yeah, and they can explore some of those ideas by um, using what's called a contingent visual display, uh, uh, like an eye location contingent visual display. And so basically, if you have like a, if someone's interacting with the visual world, you can make it so that they can only see a small area around where they're fixating and everything else is blurred out. And so you know that they're not using the peripheral vision. Oh, I see. And so then you can say, oh, we can tell in this task they need the peripheral vision because when we mask it all out, they can't do it. Whereas Mm -hmm. other times, maybe they're only using the information that is directly where they're looking at their phobia. So you can disentangle how much people are relying on peripheral vision by using that kind of um, interactive I mean, display. It's sort of obvious that would be very difficult to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in like a natural environment if only directly where you were looking was visible to you. Like if everything were blurry outside of like immediately where you were fixating on. Because you'd have to like right. do like a weird scan of your entire environment yeah, to just to see what was there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, so it's definitely that that that, that thing is I, I found striking, like the sense of the economy, the kind of the calculations are going on subconsciously about where to go next and the total lack of fixations in kind of irrelevant areas, as they say, because then you start to read because then it starts to feel very like and when you see some of these diagrams, like it's like so precise and it then you start, I start to get the sense that I would have, you know, if I watch. Which I think is something when people like when you watch sports or something. Like if I watch like a tennis player, like it's really good, or like especially if it's like slow motion or something, or like a dancer, like a, a ballet dancer in slow motion. Like the sense of like highly tuned, learned, like skill and precision and like lack of wastefulness. Something really, really elegant about that. And I started to get the sense of like, wow, yeah, there's actually all this subconscious, like extremely kind of precise and impressive elegance to the way we just do normal things. Yeah, um, and they. I thought it was really yeah, interesting. Yeah, the other. Um, example from her work was when they make the tea you fixate or a lot of people fixated when they're pouring um the water out of the tea kettle on the portion of the spout where the water comes out and apparently that's like you know an optimal place to gain information about how to pour so you might think maybe you're looking at the cup or maybe you're looking at the water stream towards the cup or something like that but they show that that's the strategy that people are are using is to look at the the tip of the spout which is, I mean, that's that's information about a cognitive process. It's kind of information about people's internal physics models or some information that they have that they choose to look there. Yeah, like that's highly non-intuitive. Why is it that, I mean, maybe you could know that if you thought about all the times you made tea or something, but like, yeah, there's clearly something, or I guess not, it doesn't have to be the case, but it seems like there's something quite complex going on there. Mm-hmm. Like there's many possible cases, you can... If I think, okay, where would I look if I was pouring a thing of tea? I mean, I can think of many candidates, right? I would look at the cup or I would move my eyes around or the fact that you fixate on the tip of the spout, I guess, is not obvious. Although now that I'm saying it, it starts to feel obvious. But <laughs> well, that's I think it's true not obvious, of a no. lot of science. Yeah, a lot of once science. You know once it. you know the answer. Yeah, that's, I guess like, that's oh, a lot of yeah, good that sounds, science sounds reasonable. Is, so. <laughs> right, right. But you were talking about experts and um, they cite this uh, study with cricket players where... 
the uh, so if you're batting in cricket and I don't know any words. Yeah, I don't think I know anything about the, cricket either. I'm gonna say pitcher, person who throws the ball. <laughs> they throw the ball. <laughs> what, at what is you. it, Connor? You you would know this. No, actually, actually, don't know. <laughs> yeah. it's just funny that you said pitcher because it's like obviously you're getting that from yeah. baseball, and that's probably yeah. Wrong. No, I know <laughs> that it's wrong. I, it's baller, I think. Yeah. Baller? No. Okay, you you keep talking. Okay. <laughs> bowler, maybe, maybe bowler. Okay. Wait, cricket bowlers. Yes, I know things. Uh, nice. The bowler bowls the ball, and uh, the batter person has to hit it. And they can. the The point is that they can tell that the the person who has to hit it is predicting where it will be because they fixate on the location on the ground where it is about to bounce. So they're not tracking the ball itself they're fixating where the ball is going to bounce. And so you can tell that they have this, you know, kind of simulation in their head of where the ball is going to go. And they show that better cricket players fixate that location faster than less skilled cricket players. So these are, I mean, this we're kind of hinting at with these examples of something that I think like the industry around eye tracking is trying to promote, which is the notion that like between experts and non-experts, you can tell by someone's eye movements uh, how well they're doing something if they're using suboptimal strategies. Like if for and there's like lots I think of coaching of like professional athletes on these kind of grounds. Like if if you were trying to train a cricket player or like you might you might assess them and say like, hey, this cricket player isn't very quick at looking at where the ball is going to go. So like that's something that if he got better at, he'd maybe be a better player or something like this. It reminds me of when I was young playing hurling in Ireland. People should look up what hurling is. It's a very good <laughs> Irish sport, which I've told you both about many times. Um, anyway, and you've got a little white ball that moves very quickly. And it's just funny because I remember like coaches being like, you have to keep your eye on the ball. But they were wrong. You're not supposed to keep your eye on the ball. So it's to put your eyes where you think the ball is about to be. That's you know? ironic, yeah, because people say that, that for American sports as well. Yeah. And I guess that would be smooth pursuit, and that's not what you're supposed to be doing. These people are Sakati. Uh, <laughs> some other uh, findings related to experts versus novices um, come from, we read this, this overview, a breadth-first survey of eye-tracking applications by Andrew Dukowski. And uh, so some of the examples in there were that pilots that are trained uh, don't look out the window of the cockpit they're mostly looking at their uh like dashboard machinery whereas the novices spend more time like fixating locations out of the window which is interesting because i don't know i feel like if that's not obvious to me i feel like you would look out the window maybe um and they talk about drivers who are steering around a curve um and basically if you're steering around a curve and you're a novice you will fixate at a location that's about five seconds ahead of of you, like where you'll be in, in, or sorry, not five seconds, in half a second. Um, And then as you become more skilled, you switch between fixating uh, half a second ahead and one second ahead. And so basically the half a second ahead is kind of giving you feedback as to how you're doing navigating the curve, but the one second ahead is giving you like advanced information about how you should uh, be turning. So the more expert people switch between those two locations. So I guess this is as good a time any. We also we looked at this video of yeah professional piano player. I mean we won't go into this. I mean I guess we'll link it. But like the idea is just you can tell from someone's visual behavior how expert they are. Like a great piano player will probably look at the music infrequently, or or maybe ahead in the music, 
and not look at their hands very much or look only kind of at the center of the keyboard and use their peripheral vision to know where their fingers are if they look at it at all. And like a, a novice piano player or a less experienced piano player will be looking at the keys a lot, moving their eyes around on the keyboard a lot. This was kind of the, you know, sort of a qualitative takeaway of that. Yeah, that was an interesting case where he w- was somewhat surprised by the results of the eye tracking. Like he didn't seem to know. Yeah, but yeah. I think this is the thing for a lot of fields, right? It's like it, most people don't think about this. And yeah. I don't know if it really gives you information that's useful for improving things, right? I mean, what it, what it, like if you know that like a great person doesn't need to look at the keyboard very much, but you're not great yet, it's not like you, the right strategy is to like <laughs> not look at the keyboard in advance of your being able Fake to Fake it till you make it. <laughs> I wonder, though, how... Like, I could imagine that there could be information that you could extract that will help people learn. Maybe. So, no, no, yeah, maybe. Yeah, because yeah, there's not a, a, um, another paper that we read that I hope we have time to get to is worth a glance using eye movements to investigate the cognitive neuroscience of memory by Hanula et al. in 2010. Um, but one of the examples in there is that they were um, taking people who had certain facial processing deficits and they were measuring their eye movements, and they saw that they uh, kind of scanned faces differently. They didn't pay as much attention to the eyes was um, a big theme. And they told them, like, look at the eyes now. (laughs) And there was a a patient who had amygdala damage and couldn't recognize when faces were showing fear. And she wasn't looking at their eyes that much, and when she looked at their eyes, she got better at diagnosing that, that they were having a fearful face. And so that's an example of, like, the deficit you may think is in some later processing thing, but there actually is a deficit in how they're sampling the information about the world. And I don't think that's super intuitive. Or, I mean, it's and it's a much easier fix if that's. I mean, if, if it is, if that's sufficient, then yeah, that's that's cool. Then yeah, in some cases maybe that that actually works. Uh, we can talk more about some of the findings from that memory paper because I thought it was pretty cool. It's just, it's a, just like an overview of all kinds of um, works that use almost exclusively eye movement data to um to to study things about memory and they really make the point in that paper that another benefit of studying eye movements is that you can study populations that don't self-report very well like you can study infants and see if they're showing certain signs of memory that there's not really any other way to to study because there's no other way that you can get information out of them to know what they're thinking um, they also cite as a benefit that sometimes using eye movements, uh, since it's more of an implicit test of memory, it's um, better for kind of testing dementia in older patients who might, I guess there's, uh, they, I think they cited some study that said like older patients, when they know that they're being tested, tend to perform worse because they're like afraid that they're losing their memory and it makes them anxious and that kind of thing. And so like any population that might have some kind of test anxiety could be helped by uh, using eye movements because it's not such an explicit test. It's just implicitly reading out some of their cognitive processes. Um, But yeah, but an interesting thing uh, in this memory paper is this idea of that we were talking about like experts and that kind of thing. Any kind of training and any change that happens with training is a, is a form of memory. Um, so those kinds of differences are a way of testing people's memory abilities. If they can get better at something, then you know something in their mind is changing uh, like a memory. And so some of the things that they show is that um, if you show someone an image, like a picture of a scene, uh, and then you show it to them maybe a few minutes later or sometimes even a few days later, if it's a scene... Uh, 
that they've already seen. Uh, you could compare the, what's called the scan path, which is just the sequence of saccades that they make. So which locations they look to in which order. And uh, the sequence is kind of conserved over time. So they'll make the, the same sequence of movements the second time that they see the image. Um, and if they make a, a similar set of uh, eye movements the second time they see it, they'll be more likely to say that they remember it. So something about how they're sampling it may be influencing whether it feels familiar to them. Interesting. Uh, also, people dwell on surprising things. And so this can be kind of um, cognitive high-level surprise. Like the example that they give, I think, is if you show someone a picture of like a normal backyard, but there's an octopus in it, they're going to stare at that for a while because that's surprising. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's interesting because that's something that obviously requires knowledge about the world and some form of memory of what's normal and what's not normal. Um, and then also if you show someone an image, like say you show them a street scene or something like that, and then you show it um, again later and something is different, like maybe like one of the parked cars is missing or something somewhat subtle like that, people will make more uh, saccades to the area where the change happened, where the missing car was. And this can be independent of if they can state what's different about the image. They may not be able to consciously say, oh, yeah, there was a car there. But you'll notice in their eye movements that they're looking more at the location where the change happened. So there's some sort of unconscious memory of what the image was the first time that they saw That's it. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I like that. People also remember the order of things, even if they don't need to. So if you show like three pictures in a sequence and then you show them all um, at the same time on the screen, people will make eye movements to the pictures in the order that they saw them. And so people are just kind of instinctively storing temporal order of things, it seems like. I mean, which, I don't know, maybe it relates something like, it's almost navigation. It's almost like visual navigation of a space. Sure, okay. <laughs> I mean, I, this is speculative. Yeah. I just, it sounds familiar to like the way you would think of like, I traveled here and then I traveled here. Yeah, yeah, I guess so, yeah. Uh, they also, another thing kind of related to this idea of you being able to read out something, even if the person doesn't explicitly know it, uh, if you have people look for some sort of target in an image, like you tell them to look for a particular shape and color or something like that amongst a, a bunch of noisy uh, shapes and colors that aren't what they're looking for, they will uh, make a bunch of saccades looking for it. And then they'll start to saccade in the area of the target, like they're kind of like sniffing it out. But you'll be able to tell basically four saccades before they actually report that they see the target that they're going to see it. So, I mean, maybe it's just like people are being extra certain. And so they kind of think it's there, but they're looking around a little bit more to make sure. Um, but it seems like you can kind of read out that they've spotted the target even before they explicitly say that they've spotted it. And so some of the um, kind of clinical things that they've tested is, um, so I said that you can tell if someone's seen an image before based on their saccade patterns. And generally, if a image is novel, people will make more saccades. They'll fixate on more in different areas. And if it's familiar, they'll just look at it a little bit uh, and then stop. And so they tested people who had hippocampus damage and so had amnesia uh, to see if they could uh, kind of store these implicit memories. And it seems on that kind of task of uh, testing if they've seen the image before, they do have these memories in that their um, eye movements suggest that they've seen the image before. They make fewer saccades on images that were shown to them before, even if the patients don't uh, explicitly say that they've seen the image before. 
So they have that. But then this other task of uh, if you change something, like the, the car, parked car is missing from the street scene, they don't show the eye movements in the location of the change. That kind of relational memory is what they call it, does seem to be impaired in people with hippocampus damage, but the general novel familiar distinction in terms of their eye movements doesn't seem to be impaired. That suggests some subtle difference between those two different types of memory. And yeah, so I mean, in infants, they use basically some of these findings to test things out in infants. So if you know that in, uh, that generally people will look more at novel things, uh, you can see uh, that same pattern in infants, that they'll look more at something that they haven't seen before. And you can also kind of use that as a readout of surprise. So this is, um, I think, a test of object permanence is done this way. So like if you take an object and in front of a baby, you put it behind a screen uh, and then you lift the screen, you know, a person would be surprised if that object were gone because they just saw it go behind the screen. Um, and uh, a child that has object permanence would also be surprised. And so if the child is looking a lot at the area where the object should have been, it suggests that they expected it to be there, and so they do have object permanence. So you can use eye movements to read out uh, that kind of cognitive skill, even in uh, an infant that can't report it. I guess just as an aside, they also use the same sort of technique of like gaze duration as a measure of surprise. They also use in primates. There's a, there's a whole sort of rich literature uh, in ethology of looking at uh, for example, like violations of social hierarchy expectation in animals and primates, like baboons and things. Like if 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 you hear an experimenter present like an like sounds of like recordings of two uh, baboons interacting in a way that violates your expectation given the social hierarchy, you might like look towards where those sounds are coming from. The primate will look towards where those sounds are coming from longer than they would if they were in the, they were consistent with the social hierarchical expectations. So do you want to talk about the uh, sexual the differences? <laughs> yeah, the genital paper? <laughs> well, it, it wasn't it wasn't about genitals exclusively. I mean, the word genitals shows <laughs> the word up. Genitals show Not up. only does it show up, it shows up in pie charts. So oh, yeah. it shows up in bar graphs <laughs> and pie charts, yeah. It's genital pie. <laughs> That doesn't sound good. But genital, bu- <laughs> genital pie and genital bars. I mean, Are we not that. making this appealing? <laughs> oh, my God. So, okay, so this study, the, the basic idea of the study is show people porn and see what they look at. Still images, to be clear. Uh, uh, sure, not yeah, movies, yeah, okay. yeah, still images. But, like, you know, erotic stimuli. Show people erotic stimuli and see what they look at. Yeah. And this one, I guess the main analysis, I mean, they have... They have, they have analyses of these sort of standard measures of like, what do people look at first and what do people look at the most, right? So those are, those are like the easy sort of standard metrics. So like percent of time spent looking at different like kinds of things in the image and percent of time, or sorry, and first look, what do you, what do you first look at? And it's, it's basically there are three categories of people that they, they are looking at. Let's say heterosexual men, heterosexual women who are not taking the pill and heterosexual women who are taking the pill is basically what their three categories are. And they say, what do they look at? And some of the basic categories that they have for what people could be looking at are the female face, the male face, the genitals, uh, the female body, the male body, the clothing of the people, uh, which I guess... 
how there much might clothing. Be some. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. And the background of the scene. Also, I was I was surprised that they um, didn't split genitals up into male and female. But then I figured maybe they're like too close together in <laughs> in these images to be distinct in terms of uh, look location. I, I think the idea is yeah, this is heterosexual uh, intercourse. Intercourse or oral. They said in the methods. Or oral. Okay. The methods is a is fun to read for this kind of work. <laughs> it's any, like, any other gems from the methods? Well, typically in oral, the genitals are not beside each other. Very good, very, Connor. Uh, flexible. Yes, just wanted to be clear, <laughs> scientific. Uh, but the, the the paper itself, we should we should make very clear, is is entirely devoid of any any erotic stimuli. So it's it's a totally safe paper to to read. It is safe for work. But yeah, they said they got the images off of free internet sites, <laughs> so it was like a grad student's job to go download porn. Uh, and then, so while the experiment was happening, the um, they made it clear that no one was watching the person while they were watching the images, So because that, that would be kind of maybe intimidating, but the, there was someone watching the screen that showed where they were looking. So there's just like someone to make sure the eye tracking is still working is like looking at porn with the eye tracking dot on As it. As if so that doesn't influence where fun. you look. Like if you know that someone... No, I well, mean, I don't I know they that they knew that the person was doing that. Because you made it, you, you did the contrast of like, you know, like, if I knew that someone was knew where in the screen I was looking, I mean, like... While we're on this topic, like, I did also, while I was looking up stuff for this, you know, conversation, I did also find uh, some videos online of, like, from, like, cheap news outlets like the Daily Mail, uh, basically, like, where they did, like, gimmicky things, like, we're going to take five men and put a hot woman with a low-cut top uh, in front of them and see who looks at the, the woman's breasts first. I think they were whatever. told not to look at her breasts. And they're breasts, like told yeah. not to look at It's like, yeah. so that, that's an example like, kind of exactly of this. It's they like, look at her breasts. They, you, you, you're a dude and you know that you're being supervised. And the game itself is to like not look at mm-hmm. the woman's breasts. And like, how long can you go before you look at the woman's breasts? When they're like obvious and kind of on display in some sort of ridiculous Oh, I wasn't way. trying to claim that I would be able to like not look at stuff. But it would just be like it would, it would affect your behavior, and so but I mean, so the point is, it's clear that it can affect yeah. your behavior. Like in in those, I mean, you the game could be don't let you know don't do this thing. But I I think it you know it's still hard for people to do, and people are going to probably devo- default to natural behavior if they can, or if if they're if it's like as so I don't know. I mean, it's worth yeah keeping in mind in the background that people are probably being being affected by being watched. So what are the results? Okay, so the, I mean, the results are actually pretty subtle. I mean, essentially, all, all all three groups, the males, the what they call non-cycling females, and or sorry, normal cycling females, and the oral contraceptive taking females, all look a lot at the female body, uh, a lot at genitals, and a decent amount at the female face. And that's particularly for first fixation. For first fixation, yeah. And the same three categories are kind of dominant with the female body the genitals and the female face kind of being the dominant things for all groups. But the, the sort of, there's more subtle findings. Going to the subtle level, the, the differences were that the men spent more time and had a higher probability of looking at female faces. That was like their more dominant thing. Whereas uh, the normal cycling women, the ones who are not on the pill, had more first looks at, spent more time looking at, and had a higher probability of looking at genitals. 
So normal cycling females are looking more at genitals than the other two groups. Yeah. Males are, at least for first fixation, looking more at female faces than females do. And I think for overall looking more it's at female faces. Some or something. Well, is that the idea? Well, I mean, it's not... I, <laughs> it's just the data, guys. Just the data. Just the data. And then <laughs> the oral contraceptive taking females are... Looking a bit more at backgrounds. Than... <laughs> like context and clothing. Yeah, clothing and background. So stupid. I mean, that and that was like also slightly slight fucking slight. differences. And then it's like, and then it's yeah, like, so oh, these effects... women like are... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it is, it is worth keeping in mind that, like, if you look at the pie charts, the dominant effect the is same that shape. males, females, and... F- males and females of both categories are, are looking the most kind of generally at female face, genitals, and, and female body you know, in, in some order. Genderless genitals. Um, there was also um, a slight effect of men particularly not looking at male faces and the women more willing to look at male faces. What were the conclusions from this? I feel like we just thought it was fun to see. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, I don't so know I, they talk about these sort of differences and I think it's it's always one of these things where you got to be hesitant to, to, like, you know, to draw super strong conclusions from there it. were so, only 15 people per each group yeah let, let's just leave it at this is kind yeah. of interesting yeah and maybe <laughs> you know more could be done with eye tracking in this realm and it could be the best thing is that someone got a grant to do this from the nsf yeah. is that is that where the funding came from uh this spork was supported in part by the center for behavioral neuroscience under the stc program of the national science foundation there you go there you go this kind of stuff does open the door for like the weird applications. Like I feel like lie detecting or like, you know, you show someone a picture of a crime scene and like determine if they've seen it before or Whoa. something like that. Um, I feel like there could be interesting, I'll just say interesting, yeah, <laughs> applications that are cool but maybe a little creepy uh, if we like really pin down all the stuff that you can do with eye movements. Yeah, I mean, and, and sort of being like a little bit more imaginative and speculative about the future. I mean, you know, it, it seems like, you know, a cool, like, a cool idea is that we could have machines that are capable of inferring our intentions. Um, and it does seem like, you know, like you have, you have a sense like, oh, like maybe a brain computer interface would be able to interpret your intentions and you can control things with it. By measuring your eye movements. Stuff. No, no, like I'm saying a brain, a brain computer interface, oh, brain like computer. an actual brain computer interface, you know, like something that has a, there's a chip, it's, it's implanted in, in the brain mm-hmm. and a person who's paralyzed or a healthy person could, could control, you know, uh, some sort of cursor on a computer screen or something with this. Those things are, are cool. Um, and potentially very helpful to people um sort of a much less invasive version of that that we can imagine maybe seeing in the nearer future would be if if i mean many people already wear glasses and if you could track people's eyes you 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 know people there are already many companies trying to do this like build build interfaces where you can control things by wait the eye is technically part of the central nervous system. The eye is part right? of the, well, no, the eye is part of the peripheral nervous system. Oh, I thought it was a weird thing where the eye. Well, is the re- the, retina the retina is very is. close to the central. I mean, it would it would only be a technical distinction, right? I mean, <laughs> Duh, it's just words. <laughs> yeah, but so yeah, I mean, your your yeah, your eye contains the retina, and the retina is 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 very much brain like tissue. It's the right? seat I mean, of it's, consciousness. It's, sure, the retina. Sure, <laughs> I mean, your retina. That's I would know. 
uh, this idea that uh, I think they're called selective devices. Like you can use your eye movement to actually select things and like blink when you want to click or something like that. Um, I think it's, yeah, it's being developed for people with um, disabilities, but other people would probably want it if it became efficient. Uh, I think there's there's some sort of commercial interest these days in trying to turn this into like a a way of interfacing with computers and things like this. And I I mean, I think in the sort of sort of poorly conceived prototype versions of things where you use your eyes to control things, it's actually quite fatiguing. I think people are in the process. There's there's hope of like developing ones that are going to be more effortless and I mean, again, if if you just like, if you if you if you have the opportunity to like look at eye tracking data, I think it starts becoming clear that like, you, you know, your eyes are actually doing a lot very quickly, and it doesn't seem maybe so crazy that you can infer things like someone's intent uh, from from eye tracking data, and it might f- be able to do so in a way that feels relatively effortless to a person. So I think that's potentially cool. Agreed. All right. Till next time. Hey, if you're still listening to this, you must really like us. So how about you go to iTunes or Stitcher and rate the podcast, give us some feedback. You can also go to our website, unsupervisedthinkingpodcast.blogspot.com. You can comment on different episodes, or you could give us ideas for new topics you want to hear about. We would love to hear from you. Thanks.